This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. So for our hot question of the day today, we're focusing on the election. It is one week until election day, October the 21st. It's also the last day of advanced voting. You can do that until 9 o'clock tonight. Just check your voter registration card, uh, which has arrived in the mail for you, and it'll tell you where you can go to cast your advance vote. I have, like you know, for the last, I don't know, two months or so, referred to this as the hold-your-nose-and-vote election, that you might not be happy about who you're voting for, but please just, you know, make sure you vote, uh, regardless of who you are actually voting for. Even this morning, when I stopped to get a cup of tea on my way to work, I had a chat with a gentleman at the place where I was, and he wanted to know, so Simi, like, who do you think is going to win this thing? And I said, I don't know. I, I have no clue. No clue. None. No, I have no prediction. I have no idea which way this thing is going to go, because... You just don't know how people are going to go. Are people going to vote strategically? Are they going to vote for their candidate? Are they voting for the party? Well, that's what we're asking you today in our hot question of the day. Are you voting for the candidate that you like best? Or are you going to vote strategically? Check out our hot question of the day. You'll find it online at CKNW or at SimiSarah980. That's on Twitter. You can email me, Simi at CKNW.com. Uh, and of course, you can call our buzz line and let us know your thoughts on this. 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. We've already had the question up for about 10 or 15 minutes or so and gotten about 100 votes. And it is evenly split. 49% say they're voting for their favorite candidate. 51% say they're voting strategically. That's about as close as it gets around here. So cast your vote. Let us know your thoughts about not who you're going to vote for, but what the motivation is. Are you voting strategically? You're voting for your favorite candidate. What is it going to be? One week left to go in this election campaign. Polls are still showing pretty much a dead heat between the two top parties, but right behind them, an increase for the NDP that clearly has the Liberals worried. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau has been warning voters on the campaign trail about casting a vote for the New Democrats. Meanwhile, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is saying voting NDP doesn't mean you're electing Conservatives. Now, Singh is in Vancouver today. He's at a couple of different events. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer is in Winnipeg. But let's catch up on the events of the campaign now with the help of Abigail Beeman, who's the Global National Ottawa correspondent currently reporting from the Liberal campaign. Abigail, thanks for being with us. Hello, thanks for having me. How would you describe the mood on the Liberal campaign these days? Well, I would say that it's pretty good. Uh, in that setup you talked about uh, attacking the NDP, it's very interesting, as you may remember, in the past couple of days, uh, Trudeau had been really focusing on some conservative liberal ridings, some fights in the uh, the GTA. You often hear about the 905, those ridings mm-hmm. around Toronto. But today, he has six stops. It's a very packed uh, Thanksgiving Monday, and quite a few of them are in NDP territory. So his uh, uh, media availability and... Uh, 
news conference this morning was in a riding that's uh, been long held by an NDP MP who's running again, but obviously making some strategic choices. And the Liberal Party believes that they have a shot to win those NDP ridings. Interesting. All right. So th- has the message changed, do you think? Do you get a sense of more of the hitting on the NDP? Very subtly. So for since day one of this campaign, you've heard Justin Trudeau talk about conservative cuts. You've heard Justin Trudeau bring up Doug Ford, Jason Kenney, uh, in some, some days uh, Stephen Harper, of course, more than he talked about Andrew Scheer. But a couple of days ago, you started hearing a new line from Justin Trudeau. I believe the uh, first occurrence was Saturday night of this weekend uh, at the, the uh, rally that was sort of sidelined by the, the extra security, which we can talk about in a moment too. Yeah. But at that rally, he used the line saying that he was working to elect a progressive government, not a progressive opposition. So without saying the words New Democrats, certainly without saying the word or the name Jagmeet Singh, uh, he was talking about that possibility, uh, you know, suggesting to people that if they vote NDP, uh, it's that vote slip, uh, vote split, excuse me, that could help the Conservatives get elected. We've heard that line more and more. Now, we especially heard it this morning at the media availability because, as you know, yesterday, Yesterday, Jagmeet Singh raised the possibility of working with the Liberals in a coalition government if the Conservatives won a plurality of seats, but not a majority. And so today, Trudeau was asked by 10 different reporters, in some cases multiple times, questions about the government. He would not specifically answer the question of would you work with the NDP in a coalition government, but he did repeat that line over and over again about um, working to stop conservative cuts, trying to elect a progressive government. Uh, So it is it's also worth noting in that uh, lengthy press conference this morning, two of all, all those questions, he only mentioned Jagmeet Singh's name once, even mm-hmm. though it was obviously the uh, topic for much of those questions. Right. You mentioned the extra security issue. Let's talk about that because that's generating a lot of headlines. Yes. What, what actually happened on Saturday night? Right. So the big question of what specifically happened or what caused uh, that extra security, we still don't have an answer to. So the campaign, uh, the Liberal campaign, just like the Prime Minister's office, uh, doesn't comment on issues of security involving the Prime Minister or the Liberal leader in this case. But the rally I was there uh, was delayed by nearly 90 minutes. Now, it's very common for Justin Trudeau to be late to events. I would say half an hour is quite common. But really, some you could tell that something was off. There were 2,000 people in the room. And once it pressed into the one hour mark and then closer to an hour and a half and there were MPs or candidates, liberal candidates on stage uh, giving really rambling speeches, including uh, Krista Freeland. I think we've kind of lost Abigail there. We will try to reconnect with her momentarily. Uh, She was bringing us up to date about what happened on Saturday night. That was a big concern. You may have seen some of those headlines, the rally that she was talking about, and she was there because she's covering the Liberal campaign. Uh, They were in the Mississauga area, I believe, and Liberal leader Justin Trudeau was about 90 minutes late to take the stage at this rally, and people started to wonder why. It turned out once he did... Uh, there were some big security concerns that had been raised by the RCMP, and so he actually was wearing, if you see some of the pictures, you can tell, he was wearing kind of a protective vest under his clothing. Now, that obviously, it, you wonder, is that where we're at in this day and age, you know, with the kind of political discourse that we have out there? There was a support 
that was tweeted from the other party leaders, conservative leader Andrew Scheer, along with NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, all saying like, listen, this kind of this kind of threat, this kind of security problems have no no place in politics. Now we've gotten back uh, in touch with Abigail. Hi, Abigail. Sorry Hi. about that. No, I'm sorry about that. I should mention for people who don't know, I'm currently on the Liberal media bus right now, no. and uh, the connection. <laughs> okay. I, I have a I have a jacket over my head so that you can hear me better, and I'm not sure exactly <laughs> where we are or what caused the connection to drop. But I, just, I am on a moving bus. I love that I you are going above and beyond on this. Okay, so let's just go back to what we were talking <laughs> yes, about. So he was yes. an hour and a half late. Like, what right. were the security concerns? When did you right. find out that so, was the issue? Right. So I, I, I'm not sure where you lost me. So apologies if I'm repeating myself here. But I was just saying that you could tell something was off. Something was not quite right. And when Trudeau emerged on stage, there was something that we hadn't seen before, which was that he was surrounded by RCMP emergency response team officers in uniforms, in backpacks that we know to have had rifles inside them at very close uh, proximity to Justin Trudeau. Now, all of these rallies, it, it happens every time that he has plain clothes RCMP officers but not as close and not in uniform, these, this, uh, these tactical officers that we saw that night. So when that was apparent, it was clear that something wasn't quite right. You could also make out um, that Trudeau was wearing a protective vest. Uh, another sign that sort of something was amiss is that when he emerged at that rally, he was wearing a suit jacket. Now, it's probably something only people who watch these rallies pretty closely right. would notice, but Trudeau's always in shirt sleeves uh, when he addresses the crowd. But underneath his shirt, under that jacket, was a protective that. So all of those things uh, led the reporters to be asking questions. Campaign was not commenting uh, on anything specific about what happened. And then the next day, we, we asked uh, Justin Trudeau himself about that. And you heard his comments that this wasn't going to affect the way that he campaigned. And he chose to carry on that event at the advice of the RCMP. Right. Yeah. So let's just mention that, too. So where does that threat security assessment comes from? Does it come? It comes from the RCMP. Right. Is that right? Right. Well, the RCMP is obviously always uh, analyzing and monitoring for uh, the potential of threats. So he, Justin Trudeau said in that uh, media availability that he, he takes advice from the RCMP as to what to do, how to proceed. But yes, they're the ones who are uh, looking out for the potential for threats. Right. Okay. So and that, that clearly brought a response from the other party leaders, too, didn't it? Uh, yes, it did. We saw uh, very shortly after uh, Jagmeet Singh, NDP leader, put out a tweet, uh, I believe it was a few hours later, that Andrew Scheer did it as well. But both of them uh, said that, you know, that, that this shouldn't have happened, it condemned any sort of uh, violence or threats against political leaders uh, as, as wrong in the, the following days. Sunday, yesterday, when Trudeau was asked a few times about, you know, the polarization that we've seen on the campaign trail here uh, and whether he blamed any, uh, anybody, it specifically was asked whether he blamed the conservatives for the, for the attacks that they've, the personal attacks they've been lobbing against him and, and the negativity that has been thrown his way. He did not uh, blame the conservatives specifically, although he did, you know, uh, speak to the, the negativity right. and the attacks they've been throwing, but he didn't, he was not, he did not blame them for uh, what it was that happened. And again, we still don't know what exactly the the security concern or threat was. Right. So what is the focus then uh, for the big parties uh, heading into the next couple of days, this last week of the right. campaign? The all parties getting out the vote that it works differently in in twenty fifteen, one of the the things that propelled the, the Liberals to a majority government was first time voters and young voters. But the point is just that they're not asking to get it. So one thing that you support. 
Okay, we're going to have to say goodbye to Abigail here. I was hoping that that would kind of work out. Uh, but you know what? She did a great job for us because you heard what she said. She was talking to us with a jacket over her head. Uh, she was on the phone. She's on the. Uh, she's actually covering the Liberal campaign this week. And she uh, is on the Liberal bus and it is moving right now. So we thank her very much for uh, squeezing us in and giving us that report on where we're at right now. All right, Eat Vancouver is coming back for its 18th year, and they're doing something a little bit different this year. They're actually going to have a day of only pastries. Well, if you're going to do that, then you can only talk to our next guest who's here with us on the show today. Because if you want a pastry, then you must go to Thomas Haas, of course, from Thomas Haas Chocolates. And he's going to be sharing some recipes at Eat Vancouver that he might just talk to us about as well. Hello, Thomas. Hello, hello, Sammy. How are you? I am more than excellent. Thank you. More than excellent. Not many guests say that when they come on the show. <laughs> what are you up to at the store these days? Oh, I am uh, running around with the Christmas anxiety in my neck and uh, trying to not fall behind um, thinking. You, you do something different for every season, right? Like you have themes that you do. How do you come up with those different ideas for every season? Um I mean, it's actually not that complicated. We learned over the years that we do this kind of 80-20 thing. So 80% is, you know, we know our customers expect from us um, because we are consistent. We are um, kind of reliable on that and we know it's a success. And then 20% of our um, uh, variety, we go creative and and try to reinvent ourselves sometimes and um, uh, just come up with new inspirations. Now, my favorite thing that you do, which you know this already, because I literally asked you about it as soon as you sat down. November 15. That's, that's when is the Christmas stolen going to be for sale? If you've never, if you think you've had it good stolen before, you have not had Thomas Hodge. How much of that do you sell every year? So we make 228 every day from November 15, from November, November 13th on um, until Christmas Eve. That's a lot. Yeah, and we sell out every day. I know you do, because it's like hard. Yeah. I, I feel like I always have to show like up we there always early. one day ahead, so we don't actually sell out on the shelves. But every single day, we do 228. You got it. If you've never had it before, you do have to and check heavy. it out. I know they're heavy, but they're filled with marzipan. That's why they're so heavy. Some some of them cheap out on the marzipan, but not yours. That's what's really good about yeah, them. Yeah, we put a lot of effort in there. A really lot of do. attention to detail in, in a what people call it a bread. We don't call it a bread. No. It's more like a delicate kind of cake. It's a cake slash bread yeah, slice slash of that. Delight slash Guys. breakfast, lunch, afternoon tea, It's dinner, everything. You, have, you can tell how much I love it. If you haven't tried it, you're going to have to this year. So you still, you've got the two stores, one in North Vancouver, one and here one on West Broadway. Kitsilano. Yeah, in Kitsilano. Yeah. And you're going to be participating in Eat Vancouver this year. That's correct. What are you going to be doing? Well, I just figured out I'm actually an all day, an all day event there. So there's yeah. three, three <laughs> events. Um, there is an exclusive uh, demo, which I'm going to hold for only, I think there was 18 tickets available and they were sold out within no time, apparently. So in that first uh, demo, I'm I going to show 18 dessert lovers how they can make um, three desserts sophisticated enough to serve in a restaurant, but easy enough to make at home. Uh, Are you sure about that, though? Which, <laughs> that sounds very challenging. 
Pretty sure. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm a little bit in denial at times, but um, I think um, I, I thought it through a lot of times. And it's actually not an easy one because when I go into a restaurant and I'm like, well, anything I have here should be better than I can prepare it at home. Uh, at least it should be kind of like, okay, that's a lot of work. And, uh, and sometimes that's not always the case. So in this case, it is a little bit of work, but it's actually not that complicated. Now, Thomas, I, you know, we, we did many episodes of City Cooks together. You were on the show with me. I've, so I've worked with and hosted a lot of perfectionists over the years. Robert, yeah, I'm not one of them. Nope. Robert Clark is definitely one. Pino Pastorero. Oh, is, yes. Yeah. Pino oh, definitely yeah, is from Chiapinos. Yeah. But yeah. I put you in that category too. Nope. You Really? <laughs> no, I'm in the search of excellence, but I do not want to be a perfectionist because... Okay, now this is off the record because it will it's be... It's not re- off the record because you're on the radio oh, right now. Am I on? Yeah. Okay, so it will be really hard to work with a perfectionist. Plus, I'm a happy person. So being a perfectionist, you are never happy. While I'm never content of whatever we do and I'm like, ah, oh, we can do this a little better. Um, I think I That's do- not a perfectionist. You literally just define what a perfectionist is. Somebody yeah. who's always striving to be perfect or that we can do but it better. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with excellence because I don't think perfectionism or something perfect actually exists. So you think there's a difference between excellence and perfection? Mm-hmm. Yeah, per- yeah that. Perfection, that. perfection is like you can put a heavy weight on it of like, oh my God, is it really perfect? Is it perfect in your eyes? Is it perfect in my eyes? It's probably not perfect. You will never be perfect and you'll never be happy. <laughs> that's so, literally Thomas's voice in his head all the time. Yeah. So like I'm that. like, mm, that's pretty close. Yeah. And we can do that 10 times, 100 times, and we can do it tomorrow again. And actually, you can do it too. So let's try for that. Okay. Can you tell me about one of the, one of the recipes that you're going to be making with people? So um, I can tell you all three quickly. Okay, but sure. um, So the first one is actually a classic I've, I've always had great success with. And so I would love to share things which are... Um, uh, crowd pleases and it's also the season a little bit so we have pineapples which we uh, shave like a carpaccio we make a little bit of a syrup of ginger vanilla beans and lime juice and then lay the carpaccio out just like you would lay out a carpaccio of this finely shaved pineapple uh, season it with a little bit of that syrup and then we have coriander leaves uh, which we grind with sugar and uh, oh, limes which we delicious. juice and make a little bit of a sorbet you can make that at home by just making a granite so you can just freeze it and then shave it and um and then we have our pomegranate seeds um Wait, this is all so, the same dessert yep that's one dessert so it's that's a pineapple f- carpaccio with lime sorbet that sounds amazing Number two is one of our new, um, uh, it's called the Black Line, B-L-A-K, um, which was kind of inspired, uh, I'm, that's probably I'm getting old and I'm like, the overuse of artificial food color in our industry has gone so crazy. And you mean in the, in the candy industry, like the in, chocolate industry? In the chocolate industry, oh. even in the cake industry now. And I'm like, you don't need that. It's all Mother Nature gives you all. And so I'm getting a kind of frustrated where the new generation goes. I'm like, okay, we do the opposite. We make exactly something super simple, focused on the beauty of cocoa and dark chocolate and so we came up with this black line each recipe has only five ingredients okay and um uh, but it's i think um really dialed in of creating something beautiful with very few ingredients and keep it as pure and as natural and you gotta love dark chocolate so that's our second uh, dessert and our th- uh, third dessert is something which is easy again you can take a verine like a little shot glass or any kind of um, glass you feel is appropriate and we use three chocolates and only cream and milk 
milk chocolate, dark chocolate, white chocolate, and create an emulsion and pour them layer by layer in the glass. Let it set in the fridge for a few hours, and it's a delicious, simple, creamy chocolate dessert. That is so yummy. How do you get inspired? Um, through work. I have to say, like, I have to be in it. I have to be working in the kitchen and then having my hands in all the things. And then I feel like, oh, my, oh, I just got an idea. And then I write it down because I forget things. So I write it down again. And, um, and then the next day I practice it and I take somebody with me like, I just got this idea. Let's try this out. And we have a couple of runs and we have now a pretty good success rate that like the vision we have uh, matures pretty quickly into something uh, we can keep for a long time. Because one thing I found that is so distinctive about like Thomas House chocolates in particular are the flavor combinations that you come up with. They are, um, again, not out of the super ordinary. Like there's no wasabi and mustard seeds or garlic gloves infused in milk chocolate. So they're pretty based on on things which we know they will go well together you know milk chocolate and green cardamom for example and yeah. almonds that's something which really goes Classic. well together or um, certain herbs go well together or certain fruits go well together with certain types of of chocolate so and again we, we like to please and we don't like to shock so we want to make sure that the combinations we do they're interesting enough for somebody to like mm, i want to try this and then they're like mm, and that actually works yeah so um yeah, and that's a never-ending story. Sometimes it comes in circles, and I'm like, oh, I just got this idea. And then I feel, no, we did it five years ago. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now <laughs> I'm starting to happens. date myself. He said. But it's funny that you say you keep a, do you keep like a notebook handy where you write it down right away in case you forget it? Yeah, it's actually loose papers, and they're all over the place <laughs> in an organized manner. Oh, if such a thing were possible, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you're going to be doing this Eat Vancouver. Is this, this the first time that you've done Eat Vancouver? No, I've done it two years ago. Okay. So the, only the second time, though, at 18 years of doing it. Yeah, I think um, it has changed over the years. Um, uh, the format has changed. And so this is now this third year. It has changed a little bit again where there's this demo I'm doing. And then we have an expert tasting panel following right after, which... I think that a hundred people can come and ask questions so and good. get an inside view into the industry. And there's four of us on that panel. And then we move uh, right into the grand tasting, which uh, 15 pastry chefs and chocolatiers from the city, which is great that we can get them all together. So you at home can say like, hey, I want to see what's actually out there without driving throughout the whole city and, um, and, and come to the um, Vancouver Club and... And try all that. So you love dark chocolate. I mean, who doesn't love dark chocolate? But nowadays, it seems like you can get this huge variety of dark chocolate. What's the perfect kind? Well, that would be the one you like the most. But, <laughs> but um, I like uh, the seventy-two percent myself. I, I think right? here we go. Yeah. So that's exactly where, like in the seventy percent range, I think it's not too. My bitter. husband likes eighty-four percent, and that is, you just, know, you. You develop a palate for just like people develop a palate for bitter, awful coffee sometimes. I'm like, yeah. oh my God, it takes a while to get you off that. Um, you can have dark chocolate and really dark, 95%, and which becomes very chalky at the beginning. Yeah. But eventually your palate starts adapting to that. And, and then it's anything below that. Use, for example, yogurt. Like, how many people have yogurt which is sweetened, which shouldn't be sweetened? And then it's a shock for them when they go to natural yogurt. So it's the same if you go to really bitter chocolate for a long time and then you want something more balanced and you're like, mm, there's too much sugar in it. Right. And vice versa. So you go something to What's answer. What's the ideal for you to work I with? Think, I think it's uh, between 69 and 75%. That's perfect. Yeah, I think so. I think it gives you enough punch of 
the bitterness of the cocoa bean, but it rounds up the flavor and it's not uh, putting you on one of the edges of like, mm, that's not what I'm looking for. Have you ever put out a book? No. Have you ever thought about it? Um, I was approached so many times and... In the early years, I'm like, you know, if I want to write a book, I don't want to write it in a haste of like, okay, I write a book because it's I've in said right I'm now. Write a book, yeah, yeah uh, it should last for a long time and it should be dirty within three years because people use it that often. Yeah. And thinking of nowadays, I think um, there hasn't been a book uh, not written. So I, I think all the books have been written. Not true. That's not there true. Your so book much. has not been written. Then it should be different than just, you know, there's. A lot. I realize sometimes when we do um, events and um, it should be all about cooking and then actually we talk about life and we talk about <laughs> life and chocolate I, and I would we talk read about philosophies philosophy book, and yeah. all of a sudden people are like, oh, forget about the cooking. Let's just talk about, him, <laughs> about what else happened. So it might be one day it comes out and if I become a wise man, um, there, yeah, there will be a lot of uh, interesting stories in I there. Than I'm, just sure, I would buy th I'm just saying I would buy that book. In the meantime, we're going to have to make do with the fact that Thomas Haas from Thomas Haas Chocolates will be at Eat Vancouver this year. It's eat-vancouver.com. They have a whole list of great people, including, we said, the, the perfectionist, the man himself, Pino Pastorero, who will also be a part of that and many others. You can check out more information online. Thomas, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Ah, Thomas Haas, getting to be that time of year when you must stop by Thomas Haas Chocolates and pick up a little something for the season. Now, you may have heard on the show in the last month or so, me talking about taking a trip next summer. And it's funny because I've gotten so many emails from people about this who want the details. I thought, you know what, on this holiday Monday when you're home, relaxing, this would be a good time for me to be able to share those details with you and maybe encourage you to come along with us. So we've brought with us in studio today, Carol Peterson. She's with Nature Encounters, Tours and Travel. And essentially, I'm in your hands, Carol. Great, and I'm going to show you an amazing time. So first of all, jambo, Simi. That is, means hello oh. in Swahili. So that's one of the words that you're going to have to learn uh, as well as a few others, but we'll I'm, have good teachers. I'm super excited about yeah. this. This is like a bucket excited list trip you. for us, yeah. and we are going to be going, and there's space available. We want people to come and join us. There is. I've got three rooms uh, available, uh, possibly four, depending on uh, someone's just making their mind up this weekend. And then if it gets really full, there's a second departure that I'm going to do right after this. I'm just going to stand yeah, for it. Yeah, but I can't, can't go, go with them on the so second me call soon <laughs> and you know what it's not just me either my yeah. family's going along so the kids that, like, I tell all these crazy stories if you would like to experience that firsthand <laughs> and find out that no she's not actually making things up this is how they behave we want you to come with us but first let's talk about where we are okay. going where are you taking us well we're going to go to Kenya uh, we want to focus on on one particular area so we're going to go to Kenya which is one of my favorite places um, uh, there are four major uh, wildlife uh, countries, uh, Kenya, Tanzania, Zimbabwe, Botswana. Uh, Zambia is also very interesting and Namibia uh, and South Africa has some wildlife as well. Right. But we're going to concentrate on Kenya because of some of the beautiful places. We're going to see Mount Kilimanjaro. We're going to see oh. elephants, herds of elephants at the foot of Mount Kilimanjaro. So that's a, a, a national park that has been... Um, there's a woman named Cynthia Moss who's been researching elephants for, oh, um, 40 plus years, maybe, maybe so a while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she, she started, she's an American. She started off, uh, just on vacation and fell in, she went to actually to do a, um, uh, a, 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 a 
write for National Geo or something like that. And then uh, she fell in love with elephants and stayed. And and so we're going to go there. So you're going to see lots of different species, but elephant will be our main focus. And the thing for me, which is Mm -hmm. so great about this, is I've always wanted to do this, but every time I tried to start planning it Mm -hmm. or thought about it, it seemed overwhelming because I didn't know like where to go, what's the best place to do, who to talk. And how many times have you been? 88. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) 88. That's (laughs) groups that I've led. uh, And I've also spent time uh, just on my own doing things and whatnot. This is over 29 years. Next year is my 30th anniversary and our safari is going to be my 90th. Oh, so I'm we're so going excited. to celebrate. Yeah. So excited. We yeah. are going to celebrate. Yeah. So how do you decide mm. where we go? Like, have you been mm-hmm. to every single one of these places? I have. Yeah, I've been to every one of them, uh, sometimes two, three, four times a year. Uh, I like different ecosystems, so I want to show you these different ecosystems. We're going to see, like I said, Mount Kilimanjaro. So it's a very dry area, but they have a, the water comes uh, from underground springs from Mount Kilimanjaro. So mm-hmm. there's swampy areas. I use the term swampy. There's water type areas. And so you'll see animals, um, you know, by watering holes and, and all sorts of stuff. Like then up close, we get to get up. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Right. In fact, I will tell you, don't worry, just keep photographing, photograph, photograph, because in this particular area, because of Cynthia Moss's research on elephants, they'll walk right by, you can hear the sound of their ears on their backs as they walk by, Not and elephants are silent. You'll be able to just watch the babies playing, like right beside the vehicle. So, and, and it's a wild wow. place, it's not... It's not fenced. It's a national park. They can come and go as they please. If they don't want to be there, they'll take off. They won't stay. Right. But they do often because they're habituated to seeing vehicles in all of the places that we go to. And that's that's one. That's the one thing that they are used to because yeah. you don't want to get too close, right? No, you don't want no, them close to no, human no. interaction or anything. We have to stay on the on the roads or uh, we're not going to go off road. If yeah. they choose to come, then then that's fantastic, you know, and right. some of them do. You know, I've even had uh, lions come and Ooh. use the shade of my vehicle Uh get underneath the vehicle. In fact, one time in the Maasai Mara, which is our last stop, uh, I had uh, my amazing guide, Samson, was sitting. The poor guy had to go to the washroom really bad, but we had four baby lions underneath the vehicle (laughs) and you could feel them, uh, you know, underneath the floorboard. You know, you could kind of feel them and stuff. So we had to wait till they do at that point. You got to wait till they... Take pictures. (laughs) That is unreal. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the uh, Maasai Mara. What is that? That is a national reserve as well. So again, a, a, a park that is a protected area as is Amboseli, as is the Aberdeer's Mountain Range where we're going to and Lake Nakuru. So we're doing four different ecosystems. The last one is the Maasai Mara. And of course, it is uh, renowned for... Have you ever heard of Big Cat Diary? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's where it's all shot, right there. Oh. Yeah. There's a couple of um, uh, photographers that are Kenyan that have, have started that and it's... Um, uh, so we're going to be looking for lion, leopard, cheetah. We're going to be looking for everything all the way along, but that's a fantastic place to see the big cats. So I take it that you've learned like through trial and error, good time to go, yes. best places sorry. to stay, yeah. all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, sorry, we meant to get to that answer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, after having been for all of these times, I know uh, like the migration, people say, well, I want to see the migration. We're going to hopefully see the start of the migration. They'll be coming up. Migration goes all year round, but at that time of the year, um, it's a good time for you to go. So we can't quite see yeah. everybody coming up, um, but the, the zebra will be coming up ahead of time because they're the long grass eaters. So we know that. Um, but I know the places to go. I love my lodges. I spent 
so much time at these lodges. Oh, and I have to staff. weigh in on that because like yeah. when you put the itinerary uh-huh. online, of course, like I'm a research fanatic. So the first thing I did was take a good look at all these places yeah. that we're staying. They are sensational. They are. And they're, you know, if you look at uh, at what's included in this particular safari, um, it's it's all inclusive. You just need your airfare on top of that, which I can right. help you out with as well. And insurance, travel insurance is very very important. Yeah. Uh, just for that, um, for various reasons. But yeah, it's. I mean, your 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 guides are amazing. Some of these guides that we've had uh, that we're having are have been with me for twenty some odd years. <sighs> They're like my brothers, and they'll become your brothers too. Trust me, you, they you, already are. Actually, <laughs> you've been doing this for so long, and you clearly love going to Kenya. Mm. But there's other trips that you do in Africa. Like, aren't you? Yeah. Are you taking isn't John going to, or Macoma's going to Tanzania, right? Yes. 2021, we're looking at northern Tanzania and Zanzibar for him. Uh, oh, Zanzibar. I saw the picture. Yeah. It's well, beautiful. I have to add that one on too. Uh, I'll go on vacation with John. <laughs> there, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the station would like that, but yeah. Um, I also love Zimbabwe and Botswana. Those are two of my favorite places. And I do that about every two years. So September 2020, I've got a group going to Zimbabwe and Botswana. So there's a lot more activity, walking, canoeing, because we're going to be on large waterways, right. uh, Okavanga Delta and things like that. So, Do you think this is what people now, Carol, they're looking for, right? Mm-hmm. Like the regular vacation is great. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. But people are also looking for a little something more when they go. They are. And they're looking at giving back. So every oh, time right. yes. someone comes to your table they to wait on you, they have 30 people at home that they that they take care of. So we've included your tips and gratuities. You're welcome to tip more. We visit the Kajiato Girls School. Uh, the AIC Kajiato Girls School is very near and dear to me. I've been f- um, supporting them for over 20 years now. And um, we love the Maasai. The Maasai, however, have some cultural issues where, uh, well, differences, uh, yeah. where they um, will marry off their young ladies at a very early age and um, uh, circumcise them. Right. So we've given them a place that they can come to. It's a bride rescue program that they can come to and get an education. Some of them can go back. Some of them cannot go back home. So... Um, we're just able to do that uh, to help them, these girls, get an education. And then they then they can make their choices where they want to go. If they want to go back and, and have babies, that's great, you know, but at least they've got an education. And so we get so to see the school, too. You are visiting the school. We'll be oh. we'll spend a couple hours there, too. That's on our very first day. Before you see elephants in the wild, you'll see my girls. I'm very excited about yeah. this. Now, I um, is there anything else you wanted to tell people about this? Or no, People just should just call come. you. Can they call you? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I This is my small business um, I've started it, you know, like I said, I've been doing this for 30 years. I'm a photographer by trade. So that's what got me to Africa Oh, your pictures. Place. Yes. Let's talk mm. about that. Oh, yeah. Well, Where can people see more of your pictures? Well, just on the Nature Encounters Tours and Travel website uh, or Facebook too. I've got a great Facebook page. So I always put the photographs, like our photographs that yeah. we're going to be taking. I photograph everybody and then they'll be on if you want them to be. I don't tag anybody, but if you want to, you know, see what kinds of wildlife we saw every night, I put that on and this is what we did oh, today. Cool. So Yeah. Um, and we have a group meeting coming up, right? Can we people do. come December, and join that? Yeah. December 7th. You should give me a call first uh, at the 604-947-9007. Um, uh, oh, sorry. 604-947-9005. Say that one more time. 604-947-9005. Right. Do give me a call or email and whatnot. Uh, and the website is at natureencounterstoursandtravel.com. Just tours, natureencounterstours.com. Okay, people can check that out. Simi, I'm going to show you the 
trip of a lifetime, and your life is going to change. Really? Uh Uh-huh. Look at it. Can you believe that? That's like, I've been on a lot of vacations, Carol. That's a pretty big... <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> I would love to have you come and join us too. So make sure yeah. you check out the website, natureencounterstours.com, or give Carol a call. You only got a couple spaces left. So yeah. let's see if we can book this thing up. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And get ready to go. Absolutely. Would love to have you there. Thanks for coming in on your holiday Monday. My pleasure. Thank you. And happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you too. You'll believe me. We'll have Carol back on at some point too to talk more about this. All right, as part of our leadership series, we're talking about what it is that leaders do that set them apart. Now, true leaders see a problem and they can kind of rally a team to help them fix that problem. And that is what the leaders at the Surrey Crime Prevention Society have been trying to do now for decades. They've been at this, well, since the mid-1980s. And they've been trying to tackle Surrey's crime issues from a grassroots level, but they also have the help of a large network of volunteers. Nikki Reitmeyer checks us out. Breaking news, one man is dead following an overnight shooting in South Surrey. Neighbors heard shouting and arguing and then gunfire from within the walls of this South Surrey property that is now a crime scene. A black Chrysler 300 riddled with bullets, both front windows hit. More deadly violence in South Surrey overnight. I heard about five, four or five shots and then a short pause and then one more shot. It's a headline often heard in the news. Violence and crime in Surrey. But an organization called the Surrey Crime Prevention Society are doing their best to change that. Thanks to their volunteer network, they are making their community safer. Oh, hi, Nikki. My name's Karen reed Sidhu, and I'm the executive director with Surrey Crime Prevention Society in Surrey, British Columbia. When did the Surrey Crime Prevention Society first begin their work? started in 1984, and our organization was grassroots. At that time, we had limited funding, and now with the growth that we've had since uh, 2012 when I came on board, I rebranded all our programs and re-engaged our community partners because at some point we sort of lost some of that relationship. And so with the rebranding and re-engaging our community partners, we were able to reestablish our programs and grow them from that point on to the point where we've had a significant uh, number of volunteers. As a matter of fact, in the past four years, we've had just over 1,500 university and high school students support our programs. You know, that's incredible. When we talk about the subject of leadership, you are obviously a candidate for that description because of the work that you do. But furthermore, those youth, those 1,500 youth, you know, they also deserve the title of community leaders. What we've discovered is there was a real missing piece for youth in our community to help them understand and develop that sense of civic pride. And that's what we aim to do here is give youth an opportunity to get involved in their community, making a difference and also developing some really strong skills. 
So what are the typical duties asked of a volunteer with the Surrey Crime Prevention Society? Volunteers are trained to observe and report. They receive a complete training program and then are teamed up with a seasoned volunteer to help them ensure that they're following the proper protocols and keeping themselves safe. They will go around in five city centres within the city of Surrey observing and reporting on foot tours. We also have bike tours where they're trained on riding a bike and properly and uh, safely and going out and within the park areas, etc., to observe and report. They all have radios that are on repeaters so they can be heard anywhere within the city of Surrey. I can tell you that they've reported on things like vehicles that have been stolen, uh, drug trafficking, assaults in progress, vehicles broken into, etc. Also medical emergencies. Many times their volunteers, specifically in Newton and downtown, have come across individuals who have overdosed or experiencing a medical emergency and we call it into the EHS. So we have a very strong team here. We have multiple programs that offer for high school students as well. If you're high school and you have to do your work experience hours before you graduate, which is mandatory, we offer a program there. We also have a program for vulnerable youth. I would say that 80% of our volunteers are from diverse multicultural backgrounds, which makes us really unique and valuable in the community because we, we have multiple languages being spoken in our, in our team. So that's great. If you would like to volunteer or assist the Surrey Crime Prevention Society, visit preventcrime.ca. For the 980 CKNW Leadership Series, I'm Nikki Wright-Meyer. How do you feel about fighting in hockey? You know, when you go to a hockey game, like a Canucks game, do you expect to see a fight or two break out on the ice? Professional hockey has been really grappling with this for a while now. We know how destructive and detrimental fighting can be, and yet many, many fans still expect to see some fisticuffs when they watch a game. Why? Where does that feeling come from? And what is the human cost of that? Well, that's the topic of a new book out this month called Major Misconduct, The Human Cost of Fighting in Hockey. It is written by journalist Jeremy Allingham, who joins us now. Thanks for being here, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Now, you wrote about, and this really struck me at the beginning of the book, you wrote about going to a Giants game on a Friday night and observing the crowd when a fight broke out. What really struck you about that? Well, it's funny because up until that point uh, of going to that innocuous Friday night game, I, I had really always internalized the message that, you know, from the Don Cherries of the world, from those Rock'em Sock'em videos, the clip you just played there, that fighting was normal and it was a part of the game it was, and it was necessary. And for some reason, that night, I'm sitting there with the boys seven rows up, drinking a few beers, just expecting a, a regular old quintessential Canadian night at the hockey game. And then all of a sudden, the gloves drop and hit the ice before the puck even does. It's one of those fights that happens right away. And the crowd rises, the guttural thunder. And I, for some reason, zoned in on the players' faces. And what I saw was, these are two children. And we were the adults in the room, rising to our feet, screaming at the top of our lungs for them to bash each other's faces in. And once the fight subsided, I grabbed a program from someone close to me. Uh, Turned out the kids were 16 and 17 years old, so literal children in the eyes of the law. And my stomach sank, and I kind of retreated to the concourse and uh, haven't looked at fighting and hockey the same ever since. It really does still happen, though. I was telling uh, you know the listeners earlier that I was at a Las Vegas Golden Knights San Jose Sharks game on Sunday night in Las Vegas, 
and a fight broke out and just exactly what you just described there happened, right? Crowd jumps on their feet. Mm-hmm. They are yelling there. And it was really striking to me because I thought, boy, they, they, these fans are really deeply into it. So do you think the players are doing it because the fans expect it or do the players expect it? I think this message, the one I mentioned at the beginning, has, has truly and sincerely been internalized, yes, by fans, but more so by the players from a very young age. They are taught that to succeed, for your team to succeed, you must sacrifice. You must sacrifice your body and, in, you know, in the case of fighters, uh, sacrifice your brain and your well-being for the good of the team, for the victory, for the clan. And what, they don't, what isn't hammered home to them is that this has consequences. This can have devastating consequences in the form of traumatic brain injuries, in the form of something called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, and the symptoms of that are devastating. We get, I get into it in the book with three guys, all from BC, all with dreams of making, pro, of, of making their pro hockey uh, careers and who in the end have these lives that are really challenging, that, that have you know, like mental, mental uh, health problems, addictions issues, um, in and out of prison, homelessness. Like these guys have very challenging lives. And so... Um, you know, to see that happening is is so sad. But I, I mean, again, these guys thought they could make their right. pro hockey career come come true by doing it. You talked to three well-known hockey enforcers, James McEwen, Stephen Pete, and Dale Puritan. I just want people to have a listen right now, Jeremy, of a clip of a fight that Dale Puritan took part in when he was playing for the Islanders back in 2004. Shoots into the corner, but now Puritan puts Cairns down and keeps pounding away, and Garth Snow will come to Cairns' rescue. Dale Puritan knocked Cairns to the ice and then kept flailing away. And you don't often see a goaltender decide to join the fray. The Ranger goaltender, Mike Dunham, is standing at the Ranger line. Cairns is up, though. And now Cairns answering Puritan back. The linesmen have all they could do to keep Eric Cairns and Dale Puritan apart. Now, you talked to Dale Puritan. What's it like for him now? Dale's a great guy. He's, you know, he's been coaching. He has a couple of kids, and he's been coaching uh, some youth hockey on Vancouver Island. Uh, he struggles a lot with you know, some of those symptoms that go along with long-term traumatic brain injuries. Um, you know, he has a lot of mental health issues, some depression issues. Um, and after his playing career, I mean, he had a lot of impulse control issues and, you know, he still dealt in violence and, and that violence ended up breaking out outside of a bar in New York state at one point. And he ended up going to jail in a maximum security New York state penitentiary for uh, about five months. So he was away from his family at that time, but since that time, he's kind of um, decided to, to try and get his life together. He still has a lot of challenges um, when it comes to mental health, but uh, he's, he's living his life and trying to support other fighters. Um, you know, the reason I actually met Dale was my story of Stephen Pete, and Stephen and Dale know each other from fighting each other, but Dale read my story about how poorly Stephen Pete was doing and wanted to reach out uh, for him to help. And, and people who know hockey enforcers know they often have a heart of gold, so... Dale's one of those guys. He's just a fantastic dude, but uh, yeah, facing some challenges. So would you say that all three of them have similar stories then of kind of where they're at right now? Um, I would say no. They're, they're, where they're at now is, is quite different. But what I will tell you is that the way they got to where they are is very similar. These are young guys who had dreams of playing in, in the pro ranks. And what they found was the way they could do that was possibly by using their fists. And, you know, um, I can tell you that Dale is getting by 
James is doing, James McEwen is doing quite well, former captain of the Corner Rockets. He actually put on a hockey school this last summer. Still has a lot of challenges from traumatic brain injuries, but he's doing fairly well. And then Stephen Pete um, has had a lot of struggles in and out of prison with homelessness, mental health issues as well. I have been in touch with him. He's doing okay. But uh, again, these are, these are challenges that face them on a daily basis. Do you think, Jeremy, that things are changing? Um, I think, so So last year in the NHL, it was an all-time low for fights, but there was still 226 fights in the NHL last year. And if you add up the NHL with the American League and the East Coast League and then all major junior across the country, there were 1,770 fights in hockey last year. So we can say that fighting seems to be leaving the game, but if it is, it's happening very slowly and there are still hundreds upon hundreds of fights that happen, and we know the devastating consequences of those fights. Is the NHL more willing to admit that these days, do you think? No, not at all. I mean, um, earlier this summer, Gary Bettman appeared before a a parliamentary subcommittee on sports-related concussions, and, uh, I mean, I was flabbergasted. He really sidestepped questions about fighting, and I don't know whether he did this intentionally or not, of course, but he very clearly misrepresented the science on uh, traumatic brain injuries and uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. He was actually corrected by the doctor he cited at the hearing the day after the hearing. So um, it doesn't seem as though the NHL is super keen to really address this in any meaningful way. So what will make the difference, do you think? Will there be a turning point? Will it be the players who eventually have to say, I'm not doing this? Well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if it's going to be the players. What, I, what it has to be, I think, and the problem is, is we see Gary Bettman kind of dodging, but it has to be someone who has control of the rules, who has influence on the rules. Like, they have to decide that if we love the game of hockey, then we certainly have to care about the players who play hockey. And they have to say to themselves, we don't want any more deaths. No more Steve Monitors, Rick Rippins, Wade Bielacks. Derek Bugards, no more guys like in my book who are suffering after their game's over. They have to put player health and safety first and legislate fighting out of the game. And the way to do that, there's a great example from the Ontario Hockey League just three or four years ago. They brought in a rule where if you fight more than three times in a season, you get a suspension every time you fight after that. And what happened? They cut fighting in half in one season. So if you bring in rules that just aggressively go after that behavior, you can snuff it out. Do, do you think the stories are more public too? Like you mentioned some names here like Rick Rippin and, and Derek Bugard. We're, are we much more willing and open to talk about those cases now, whereas before they might have just been kind of swept under the rug? Yeah, I think they were swept under the rug. And I think, we, I think there is a more, more of a societal willingness to address those stories. But I still think there's a huge problem with loving the game of hockey and then loving the players, but then once they leave the ice, just forgetting about them. That's what's happened to these guys in my book. You know, like they, they felt all this support from these fans and from their teammates and from their coaches and their teams, and then they left the ice and none of that was there anymore. And that can be really tough to deal with, especially when you have a lot of challenges. So I think the discussion is great, but we really need to focus in on the, like, I, like, well, like the book says, the human, the human cost and the human aspect of this story. Right, because a lot of the general managers, I would imagine, and the coaches even, are still of that generation where fighting was acceptable, almost even encouraged. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a generational thing, but I think, again, it's that it's the reinforcement of the message of the value of fighting, that it needs to be there, that it serves some purpose, 
when what we know is that it's actually hurting people. And just like any other, uh, you know, hits from behind, hits to the head, um, stick swinging, whatever it may be, this practice hurts our players. And if we love hockey, we should care about our players and stop it. Well, Jeremy, thanks so much for your time on this today. Good luck with the book. Thanks for having me. Jeremy Allingham. He's a journalist. The book is called Major Misconduct, The Human Cost of Fighting in Hockey. Our next guest has a real super fan following, and I'm just talking about here at CKNW, here at work. You should have heard the people yelling at her when she came in today, and there's no surprise about this because... She is writing about women's health in a way that just everybody says, why haven't we had this before? We do have better access to health information than we've ever had before, but women's health, sometimes there are still problems and issues that don't get talked widely enough. And Dr. Jen Gunter has made it her mission to make sure we do talk about those things. She's an obstetrician, a gynecologist, and the author of her latest book, which is called, and I love it, it is The Vagina Bible. And Dr. Gunter joins us now. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Is that the kind of reaction that you get everywhere you go these days? <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, you guys have given me the most welcome reaction oh, so nice. far. Well, we're number one. Um, <laughs> why did you decide to write this book? Why was it important to you? Well, so I've been debunking women's health myths online for quite a long time, about six years or so. And it just amazed me that it was like this game of whack-a-mole, you know, this debunk one, a new one would come up and then this old one would pop back up again. And I just kept thinking like, how are we still in this state where we have all this information? I mean, every single person is literally walking around with a pocket computer and yet the information can't get from A to B. And so I had spent a day in the office and I had, you know, told women not to use yogurt in their vagina or that they can't change the scent of their vagina with pineapple or that that no, a penis isn't the metric of sexual pleasure for a woman. And, you know, each time this woman would say, how did I not know that? How did I not know that? And at the end of the day, I was like, how did they not know that? And I was sitting in my office and I thought, women need a textbook and I'm going to write it. Was there a moment where you thought, I need to talk more about this? Like, I know you've been very vocal on issues <laughs> like vaginal steaming. Like, why would anybody do that in that vaginal egg thing that was going on right. with goop? And so did you think, oh, all right, I, I'm enough. I have to say something. Yeah. I mean, these myths are, one, they're so ridiculous and the poor information or misinformation or disinformation is harmful, right? Nobody is served when they don't have facts. So there's that aspect of things. But many of these myths are also based on sort of patriarchal ideas that the vagina is dirty or the uterus needs to be cleaned. And so it's really important to sort of set that record straight because those myths have been around since the beginning of time. Yeah. And I think is there still maybe a level of discomfort when you're constantly saying words like vulva and vagina? People are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you talking about? <laughs> I think there is, obviously, I'm a gynecologist. I've been in OBGYN for 30 years. So my comfort level saying the word vagina, vulva, clitoris, orgasm is obviously it, yeah. different. Yeah. But I'd like everybody, like that's part of my vagenda. I want everybody to be able to sorry, say this. Did you just say vagenda? Vagenda. How much do I love that? <laughs> <laughs> that's my vagenda. It's for everybody to be able to talk about their bodies in non-sophomoric ways. I mean, if you can't say what hurts and where, you can't get care from your doctor. You can't talk with your girlfriends or your partner about what might you might want uh, you know, to have happen to your body or what's happened to your body. You can't ask for the kind of sex you want. You can't learn about pads and tampons. And, you know, so not talking about something 
implies that this shame and that's not true. And so do you think women sometimes have had trouble perhaps going to the doctor and really explaining what the problem is? Absolutely. I see that every day. People come in and they say, oh, well, my vagina itches. And what they mean is their vulva. And uh, it's not uncommon that, you know, women, even when they come to the doctor's office, get stuck using euphemisms like down there, lady parts, Uh, you know, and I'll have to say, do you mean your vagina? And then I'm giving them permission to say it. Like nobody should need permission to say, to talk about their own vagina. You know, you should be able to talk about wherever you want to. It's not a bad word. And have you ever, have you run into any people who push back against that? Um, you know, well, yeah, Jack Dorsey on Twitter. Oh. So, <laughs> so, you know, we tried to have promoted tweets for my book, my American publisher, Kensington, and they were banned for, uh, for you know, using prof- you know, profanity. So, Wait a minute, because you were just using the descriptions of body parts. Yes. So they tried to do promoted tweets for the book, The Vagina Bible, and they were um, flagged as being inappropriate based on the word vagina, vaginal, and wait for it, OBGYN. No. Yeah, my whole profession, caring for women, is somehow offensive. And got, you know, so we weren't allowed to have promoted tweets for that. Um, also, though, for the show, um, Jen's planning, the CBC wasn't allowed to, um, uh, they had ads with periods flagged as being, you know, gross and inappropriate and taken off Google. So Google ads did the same thing. Really? Yeah. So there's, you know. And, and yet we run erection ads all the time. Yeah, how many times have people watched football and seen, you know, that, that the ad where the yeah. some dude is throwing a football through a tire or swing and there's, there's nothing phallic about that at all. <laughs> no <laughs> so way. True. So true. Uh, let's run through some of the myths because you, you write about a lot of those. What do you think is, are some of the biggest myths that women come to you with? Well, I think one of the biggest myths is that, you know, good sex for a heterosexual woman um, requires penile insertion. You know, that if you don't orgasm with a penis, then there's something wrong with you. And that actually means that you're totally normal. Two thirds of women uh, need direct clitoral stimulation somehow to have an orgasm. And if a penis doesn't do that for you, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with you. Another big myth is that, uh, is that, white cotton underwear is something that will prevent you from getting yeast infections, but that's a purity myth. If white clothes helped you, then dermatologists would tell us all to dress in white, right? To protect our skin. <laughs> that's so but true. they don't. Yeah. Another big myth that yeah, this comes up all the time is that you can change the way your vagina tastes with pineapple by eating pineapple. Okay. I'm going to admit, I've never heard this before. Good. So <laughs> like they think by ingesting pineapple, that yes. will make a difference? Yeah. So if you eat pineapple, you'll make your vagina taste sweeter. And I'm like, sisters, there's nothing wrong with your vagina to begin with. If a guy thinks that you need to change the way you taste, he's the wrong guy. There's something Ooh. wrong with him. How does that go over? Um, You know, it goes over pretty well, I think. Um, you know, I, you know I, I don't in the office obviously tell people that, you know, the guy they're with has got some serious problems, but I, um, I do like on uh, when I'm interviewed because there's people listening at home. I mean, I hear women every week in my office having he- heard something horrible said to them about their body by some dude. And, you know, women are very vulnerable to that, especially if you hear it when you're 16 or 17. Uh, and, uh, and so I want to set the record straight. I mean, telling women to eat pineapple to change the scent of their vagina is no different than douching. It's sort of implying that it's dirty and needs to be changed. And why does nobody care about how scrotums smell? True. Good example. Good point. Uh, But you're right. Things do change when it comes to women's health because you're right. That one example right there when it comes to douching, there's been a 
a tremendous change on how we think about that. Yeah. I mean, douching is as harmful. I, I tell people douching is like cigarettes for your vagina. That's basically what it's like. It, in the States, douches have warning labels like cigarettes. They're, uh, they're very harmful. Yet we can't get people to stop doing it because this idea that the vagina is dirty and needs to be cleaned is so pervasive. So what do you tell women then about that? If they You're, do come to you with those kinds of concerns, how do you tell them what the real deal is? So, you know, we do an exam, first of all. So make sure that they don't have a medical condition that could explain their symptoms. And then I tell them their vagina is normal and that it's a self-cleaning oven. It doesn't need any help at all. <laughs> nice way to put yeah. it. Yeah. Vaginal discharge is actually a glorious adaptive evolutionary mechanism to keep everything healthy. It's like saliva in your mouth. It's really needed and it's it should be, you know, worshipped basically because that's what keeps things clean. Okay. So obviously that's hard for women to sometimes take though, because you're right. They probably think something is wrong. Yeah. I mean, just a couple of years ago, there was a challenge on Instagram where girls were showing their underwear at the end of the day to prove they had no discharge. There was? Yeah. Where, it's called where the underwear challenge. Been, where have I been hiding? Where have I not seen any Well, of you stuff? have to understand that my area of social media is probably a bit probably different. Probably different. <laughs> probably different where you Right? Are. And that because of what I do, people send me things. Oh, did you know about this? Did you know about this? So I, I get that a lot, right? Right. So, Nobody sends me that kind of stuff. And please don't. It's yeah. Just please don't. I don't really actually want to see any of that. What do you hope? Like, who do you want to read this book? Do you want young women to read this book? Do you want older women to read this book? I want every woman to read this book. I think you could start reading at the age of 13 or 14. I think if every young girl were vaccinated against those myths with this book, like how great that would be. Uh, I think anybody who's vagina adjacent should read the book, right? Like if you love someone with a vagina, if you have a, a you know a child with a vagina, there's even a chapter in there on, on vaginas and vulvas in transition. Uh, so, you know, I cover all the aspects of vaginal health for um, for trans men and trans women as well. So do, are women good at maintaining their health? Like how often should they be seeing a doctor? How often should they be checking in with an OBGYN? Well, a lot of that's age dependent. So if you're under the age of, or if you're 25 and under, then you're going to need regular screening for sexually transmitted infections if you're sexually active. So that's a little bit different. Cervical cancer screening should start at the age of 21. And it's usually about every three years, but guidelines do vary. So, you know, your doctor will tell you. And then obviously, if you have any health concerns, if you're missing periods, if you're getting irregular periods, if you are unhappy with your method of contraception, if you need contraception, um, you know, any symptoms. But regular check-ins are really just for, you know, pap smears and um, and sexually transmitted infection screening. Do we need to be better at that? Because I have a feeling like, oh, and I'm totally guilty of this. I think, well, nothing's wrong, so I'm not going to go to the doctor. I'm not going to bother the doctor with this. Well, you don't want to miss your regular screening, right? You don't want to miss your yeah. cervical cancer screening. You're not bothering us for cervical cancer screening. We want you to come in for that. So that's not bothering us at all. I do think that a lot of women, because women are fixers and copers, that, right? Yes, we are. Yeah. So you have minor symptoms, you muscle through, and then it's eight months and you don't realize how bad it is. And so, you know, that's why I'm trying to get all this information out there. So maybe women can sort of realize, you know, what maybe is okay to put off to one side because life is busy and what really needs attention right now. Like, for example, if you're having bleeding after sex, don't wait eight months. You need to be seen. It's, you know, it's not a hemorrhage. It's not, I mean, if you're bleeding heavily, you need to be seen right, right. now. But if that's not something to put off. Use your common sense. Yeah. Well, but, you know, your body, you sometimes a little bit of bleeding can be a sign of a big problem. So again, that's why information is so helpful because then you can help figure it out. But you should never hesitate about calling your doctor for advice. Your doctor should want to give you advice. And you could always read the book because that'll help you out too. Absolutely. If you need information about the vagina and vulva, I got you covered. Oh, she certainly does. That's Dr. Jen Gunter. Her book is called The Vagina Bible. She's an obstetrician, gynecologist, you name it.